Last night, uh, my wife Jamie and I had the great privilege of having dinner with Josh and Emily Youssef and Andrew and Noreen Brunson. And I left dinner with one metaphor in mind that I felt like described the Brunsons. A friend of mine would often say that still water runs deep. You all are going to hear from a very deep man this morning. Andrew Brunson is the son of missionaries. He has six brothers and sisters and was raised in Mexico. He holds degrees from Wheaton College, Erskine Theological Seminary, and a PhD from the University of Aberdeen. Andrew and Noreen spent the next two decades after school serving as missionaries around the world, first in Europe and then in Turkey. I first got to know of Andrew and Noreen Brunson at my time in the White House when the president and the vice president put a huge priority on demanding and working to secure the release from prison, where at times he was held in complete isolation for two years, and at other times he was put in jail, cell, jail cells three times their design capacity. Securing his release was not only a top priority for the White House, but it became a rallying call and a center of prayer for millions of Christians around the world, something he nor Noreen ever expected. The Turkish government had manufactured charges against Andrew and Noreen that they were part of a conspiracy to overthrow their leader and government, Erdogan, and Andrew was ultimately charged as a terrorist and spent nearly two years in dire conditions. Securing his release was not only a top priority at the White House, but as I said, it became a rallying call that millions of Christians participated around the world as they prayed fervently for his release, except for one small group of older ladies who were praying something a little different. It was a small group of, of ladies who prayed that Andrew would not be released until the Lord achieved his objective and did something so mighty and so great, even if that meant that he would never be released. That was the prayer of Andrew's mother. In October of 2018, praise God, Andrew was released, and having been intimately involved during my time at the White House, I can say with complete confidence and clarity that the Lord used no one more to accomplish this than his wife, Noreen, who was faithful in her efforts, full of grace and convincing. Her briefings to the White House cabinet and many of us on the staff were poised, they were factual, and they were convincing. She was an extraordinary advocate for her husband. When you read his book, you'll know why he made her the star of the show. I will also say this, and it is not a political statement. Andrew's release was part the power of prayer of millions around the world. It was certainly due to the convincing and diligent efforts of his wife. But we also had a president, a vice president, and a secretary of state who prioritized the release of any Americans held hostage and persecuted for their religious beliefs. It would not have happened without their efforts. So Pastor Brunson, Noreen, on behalf of Dr. Youssef and an entire church, we thank God for your ministry, your presence, 
and the work the Lord is doing through you and Noreen. Would you all give Noreen and Andrew a big apostles welcome? Love you. Thank you. Since uh, this is a Sunday when you are thanking God for our country, just want to add my bit to that. Um, right after I was released from, uh, from Turkey, we flew on a U.S. Air Force plane and landed at a base in Germany. And uh, it was very late, I don't know, one in the morning, two in the morning. And we got off that plane, and there was someone waiting there, uh, and it, w- it was a U.S. ambassador to Germany who had come in to meet us at this very late hour, and he was holding a, a, an American flag. And uh, he was there to welcome us. He said, I want to be the first to welcome you home. And then he gave me the flag, and I, I took that flag, and I buried my face in it. I said, I love my country, and I am so very grateful for this country. Two of our children are in the military, and I'm 52 years old. Forty of those 52 years, I've lived outside of the United States. I'm the children of missionaries, and also I was a missionary for a number of years, as you know. So because of that, I look at the U.S. a little differently with different eyes than most Americans do from the many years I've lived in other countries. And no doubt there are many, many flaws in our country, but I also see some things that other countries don't have. And one of the very important ones is freedom, freedom of religion especially. And this is still the country that many people, that most immigrants want to come to, in large part because of the freedoms that we have During the last few months of shutdown, there are a number of things that have just been brewing in my heart. And as I was especially reading in the prophets and in Kings and Chronicles, and it it struck me how in the Bible, when, when people honored God, he showed favor. And it didn't take much to, to get mercy from God, even the, the smallest step toward him. Uh, honoring him, looking for him, calling out for his help. God poured out mercy. He, he suspended judgment and showed mercy to people. And at the same time, I've also it's been underlined to me how when, we, when people show defiance and when they dishonor God, judgment also followed that. So throughout our history as a country, Many people have honored God. It's one of the reasons that I believe that God has blessed our country in many ways. He has has used the U.S. to be a great blessing around the world, apart from all the mistakes that are made, obviously. But he has used, he has blessed our country. And one of the main reasons is because we have on, not all of us, obviously, but there have been many people, many believers who do honor God. And we want to make sure that we continue to do that that we honor him. Last night we were uh, doing an interview and then Noreen's alarm started to go off somewhere and said, well, it's 8 o'clock. We have set our, she set an alarm so that every night at 8, uh, it goes off and it reminds us whatever we're doing, we just stop and we worship. We don't start interceding, we just worship. We honor God. 
But this is changing very quickly in our country. And I, I look at the open dishonor of God, the defiance of God, especially many in leadership and, and on the cultural heights of our society, you could say in education and politics and many in business and media and arts and entertainment. There's such a dishonoring of God, and it grieves me deeply. I, I, I have to say I was not sensitized to this for many, many years. But since I've come back to the States after 25 years in Turkey, it's just something that has stood out to me. It's, it seems to be accelerating, an open defiance and dishonoring of God. And there will be consequences for this, and actually we're already seeing some of the consequences of this dishonoring. So I believe that there's going to be increasing pressure Increasing pressures in our country, increasing pressures on believers. Some of those have already started, things that we could never have expected even a few months ago. Uh, the, the coronavirus, the fear that that has brought, the fear of, of death, of, of serious illness. Then the pressures that have come with the lockdown, uh, the devastation of the economy, the joblessness. There's a lot of fear. These are pressures. And... Then we also have the deepening polarization and, and the anger that's arising in our society. And a friend, a friend compared this to swimming against a one-mile-an-hour current. It's difficult to swim against a one-mile-an-hour current. And these pressures are similar to this, but the pressures are going to increase. And if we can't swim against a one-mile-an-hour current, then what happens when the current is five miles an hour, and then 10 miles an hour. So I think pressure, the pressure that we're experiencing now is to prepare us for continuing pressures and even greater pressures that are going to come in the future. Now, I expect that there are many different opinions even in this room on what God's uh, involvement, what his role is, and all that is happening. And at, at the very least, I think we can say that, that he uses the pressures, whether he's causing them or not, or to what degree he causes them, he uses them to get our attention. I've said for many years that God allows the foundations of the things that we trust in to be shaken, and he does this to get our attention. So God's purpose in allowing these pressures, these hardships, is for the most part, it's redemptive. Most of it is redemptive. For believers, it's so that we will focus on what really matters. And for Noreen and me, we've seen the last few months as, as a pause, as a time for reset, where, where God's getting our attention and having us spend time really seeking his face and, and seeking his heart again as we prepare for what's coming ahead. And so this is what God wants to do right now, using these pressures, is to get our attention and say, where is your first love? Where, what is your focus? What, where is your meaning in life? What is it that, that drives you? And, and how to, to evaluate what is our relationship with him again, to check our hearts. For non-believers, he's also using these pressures because these are usually redemptive. God redeems these things, and he's using it to call people to repentance, to have them ask questions that they haven't asked before. I think of, I was being transferred from a high-security prison to a maximum-security prison, and I thought that was a really bad thing. 
because President Trump had asked for my release uh, three times in a summit with President Erdogan. It had not worked, and uh, instead of releasing me, they were doubling down, and I thought, they're, they're really putting me in a worse situation. And as I was, I was pretty devastated as they transferred me. I was riding in a, in a prison bus in a, in a bubble that they have for prisoners, a plexiglass bubble, and a, surrounding me were a number of military police with their submachine guns. And as we drove, we drove into Izmir, ancient Smyrna, which is a city that we had lived in for many years. And as we approached the, it was uh, Friday evening traffic. It was uh, the rush hour. And I looked around me and I, I'm going back through the city where this is my city and I'm not that far from my home. And my wife, she doesn't know I'm being transferred, but we're just such familiar places and I'm so close to her and yet as far as I could be. And surrounded by these cars, I remember very specifically a Volkswagen Golf, a, a small white car. And we drove by it. The person is completely oblivious to me. And I'm looking, I'm looking down at this man in his car thinking, he's going home. And I'm going to Buja Maximum Security Prison. And I'm so far from my family, so far from my children, and I don't know what's going to happen to me. I don't know if I'll ever get out, if I'll ever be with my family again. And, and then something hit me that, how, what different situations we were. And this man is going back to his family. I'm going off to prison. He has freedom. I don't know if I'll ever be free again. But I thought probably of all the cars that are surrounding us in this rush hour traffic, I'm probably the only person who knows Jesus Christ. And I thought even though I'm in a desperate situation and I'm, I'm grieving, I, I have fear and despair, yet my life has meaning. My life isn't empty. The end of my story isn't Buja prison. The end of my story isn't whatever suffering I have. That actually because I know Jesus Christ, that I had the promise of eternal life. I had the guarantee of ultimate freedom. And so many of the people around me, everyone else around me there did not. Now, I, I had known this for years, but these very difficult circumstances somehow brought this truth into a sharper focus. And this is what God is doing right now for many people, bringing things into focus. He's allowing these foundations to be shaken so that we will begin to focus, so that we will refocus on what most matters. Does he have your attention? <laughs> for those who don't know Jesus Christ yet, does your life have meaning? Does it have purpose? Do you have security? Security for your future. Do you have a foundation that will not be shaken? So the pressure is going to increase. Jesus said that this is going to happen. It's nothing new. It's just that we're experiencing it in a more intense way than we expected, and I believe it will rise in intensity. And one of the pressures that's going to affect us is especially the hostility toward believers, toward followers of Jesus Christ, to those who identify clearly with him and who also, part of identifying with Jesus, really identifying with him, is that you accept his teaching. And for those who accept this teaching and stand for it, there will be much more pressure from an increasingly hostile society. So it's already happening. I was talking with a pastor recently, and he told me how he'd come to faith as a teenager. And he said at that time, 
to become a, a believer, it wasn't that difficult. You kind of slipped into the stream and you, you floated downstream because our culture, there was a lot of influence of Christianity. But he said, now for his children, if they, when they choose to follow Jesus, they're stepping into a stream and they have to go upstream. They're swimming against the current. It is very difficult to swim against the current for a long period of time. And I see so many people who start out well, who when the pressures start, they get tired of swimming against the current and they just join and they float downstream. So this is very much on my heart. I have a burden for the U.S. that I have not had ever before. I don't remember when I started, so I have to watch my time. <laughs> when did I start? <laughs> so I, 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 I've been focused on, on the Muslim world for so many years that I just kind of took the American church for granted. And, and as we've come back into the U.S., and I, I see the rising pressure, how things are so, so different than when I was a young man. I, I have a burden for, for the next generation, for my children's generation, that it will be more difficult for them to stand than it was for me. So it's very much on my heart, this rising pressure and the hostility, because Jesus warned us that this would happen. He warned us, and I believe that many of us are not ready for what's coming. And this is very dangerous. And there are four things that Jesus warned would happen if we're not prepared for pressure, if we're not prepared to stand under pressure. The first is fear. Several people already talked about fear this morning. I'm, I'm an expert on fear. I've had a lot of fear. <laughs> So I thought I was a relatively tough missionary because, you know, we'd been planting churches in a Muslim country. If you really want to be popular, if you care about popular, you know, good opinion of people, then you don't try to plant churches in a Muslim country. And so, so we'd done that. There'd been death threats over the years and some bomb threats, and I'd been attacked by gunmen once. And when we worked with refugees, there was a lot of, uh, there was some danger in the areas we were. We, we were near a war zone. So I thought I was a relatively tough missionary. There had been fear over the years. But when I, when I ended up in prison, I was not prepared for that at all. There were a number of things that made it more intense and more difficult for me than perhaps it would have been for, for other people. I don't know. But I know that it overwhelmed me. And I was, I was just overwhelmed with fear. If God had said to me, Andrew... I want you to stay in prison. The doors are open. You can leave, but I want you to stay here. I like to think that I would have stayed, but I may have been like Jonah. I was so fearful. I had so much panic coming over me, and it took me about a year to get to the point the doors weren't open for me to leave, but theoretically to say, God, consistent, to consistently come to a point where I'd say, I am willing to stay here. I am willing to, I want to serve your purposes, and if your purpose is served by my being in prison, then I, I'm willing to remain here. Just give me the strength so that I can endure and be faithful to you. But it took me a long time to get there to where I could consistently say this because fear is overwhelming. So when fear comes, our, our automatic instinct, response is to, is to flee, to run away. And so when pressure comes to you, if you're not ready for it, if you haven't prepared 
if you haven't determined what your anchor is, what your response will be, then the very natural thing is to give in. So when pressure comes because I'm, I'm especially going to talk about, I, I'm focusing on pressure that comes because of your faith, of, st- of identifying with Jesus. When this pressure comes, you need to have decided ahead of time what you will do, what your values are, what your priorities are, that you're willing to suffer for Jesus. And Jesus said that many people are going to be overcome with fear and that they will not be faithful to him. The pressures that many are going to face are being marginalized, being looked down on, being shamed by your society, being driven out of work maybe. Maybe there's a fear of being ridiculed, of being embarrassed, of being looked down on. Those who want to follow Jesus have to be willing to swim against the current consistently and for a long period of time. So this is one of the dangers that we will fear. I'm going to talk later about how how we can deal with some of those. But first, the danger areas. Another is offense. And this, again, is something that being offended at God. Jesus warned very strongly, he really underlines it in Matthew 24, that people will be offended at what God allows to happen. God uses judgment for redemptive purposes, to turn people to him. But sometimes this looks very ugly, and it is very difficult. And there are many believers, Jesus says, they are going to be offended by what God allows to happen. I'm not saying that God causes all these hardships. I'm saying he certainly permits and uses them. And many Christians are going to say, God, how could you allow this to happen? That's one of the big questions, isn't it? Suffering in the world. It's, it, I haven't, there are many books written about it. It hasn't been solved. But many will be offended and turn away. And many will be offended at what God allows them to go through. God, I understand if you're judging all those people, but I'm suffering too. How can you let this happen to me? And then what makes it even more difficult, I think, is when we say, and God, where are you? Where are you in my difficulties and my struggles? What I experienced, what really surprised me, I had read these biographies, books, all these, some of my heroes who suffered and They talk about joy and a sense of strength and God's presence. And I assumed when I ended up in prison, and I did have fear and despair, but I assumed even with the grief and sense, I'm sure God's going to give me his presence because I had run after his presence for years. And to my shock, after the first couple of weeks, I lost all sense of his presence. And I experienced what I would call the silence of God for those two years. I didn't know that I'd get out in two years. So it was silence. It was lack of clarity. And I'm thinking, in my darkest time, oh, I've had encounters with you in churches and in conferences, but in my darkest time, when I need you the most, where is your presence? I had many doubts. I had many questions. And this was suffocating my relationship with God. And this is one of the things that Jesus warned about. 
that the, the love of many will grow cold because they are offended. I loved Jesus in prison, but I have to tell you my relationship with him was being suffocated by all the questions and doubts and accusations against him. I struggled with this offense. Noreen would come when she could visit me and speak truth to me. And even when I read the Bible, my, I always answered, yes, but. Yes, but. There was always that but that came out that I couldn't receive. The way I dealt with it is I imagined a box, a lockbox, Because I made a decision at some point. I have to fight for my faith. I have to fight for my relationship with God. And so I imagine this lockbox, and I it's a very high-tech (laughs) lockbox. I have a lot of time in prison to think about these things. And so, you know, a digital handprint, all the things I could think of from my reading, you know, to make it really secure. I open that box, and I put... I visualize putting my doubts and my questions, my offense toward God in that box, and then I locked it very securely, and I said to God, God, you and I can, are the only ones who can open this box, and if you want to open it and deal with all my questions and give me whatever, either peace or, or answers, whatever, however you want to deal with it, then go ahead. But I choose not to open this box. I will not entertain these doubts and questions any longer. And the decision with my will is that I do not need to have answers to continue my relationship with you. And that ended up, I did have questions and doubts after that, but I I worked not to give them any place in my mind. I would send them back to that box. And that, that lifted this suffocating offense from my heart, and I was able to begin to receive. Now, God didn't then give me a sense of his presence or joy or, or a sense of grace, but this allowed him to, it gave the, the room for him to begin to heal me, to heal my heart, and to repair me from all the brokenness. So I believe this is going to be an issue for many in the future, especially as these pressures continue that we're facing now. I think we're going to come out of some of these, but there will be others. And this will be an issue for many believers. Yes, as, as we think, where are you, God? And why are you allowing this? And where, many are going to experience that dark night of the soul, that silence of God at the worst possible time because it's under the greatest pressure. But there are some of you who are already experiencing it. I think every believer goes through this. Sometimes people say to me, Andrew, you went through a really hard thing, you know, and, you know, my little hardship is, you know, I don't want to compare it. And I think, wait, you know, each of us has enough to knock us out. Your trials, your tests are enough to knock you out, and mine were enough to knock me out. And, and the way God, I was tested was... was it was, it was a hard test, but your tests are going to test the same areas of the heart that I was tested in. It's different means, but it's the same area of the heart. Am I going to overcome offense? Am I going to, am I going to cling to God even when I don't have answers? And some of you are facing that now, or you, you have in the past, and you still have offense in your heart. Or you will very soon. Maybe it's an illness, a, a loved one, a broken relationship. 
and you think, where are you, God, in all of this? You must not allow offense to take root in your heart and to suffocate your relationship with God. Jesus warned that this would happen. It will. The, the, the love of many will grow cold. This is one of the dangers of pressure. Another, Jesus says, is that people will, is lust, that people to escape all the pressure will go into self-medication. And this can be obvious sexual relationships, drugs, uh, uh, food, any number of things. But they will turn to things that help them to escape the pressures instead of turning to the right place, which is saying, I'm just going to cling to God and put my eyes on him. And the last is deception. And Jesus warned that many people will be deceived in times of great pressure. I already see the natural tendency is if the pressure comes because of the truth that we hold to, because of the standards of the Bible, then you may want to go to a place that doesn't teach those things. You'll find a teacher who tells you, you don't have to stand up for these things. You don't You don't have to hold to the teaching of the Bible. And many people go, they they slide into that because to do otherwise means they will have to face that pressure. And many leaders are not willing any longer to raise these issues in their churches and to equip their people because if they do, there will be division in the church. There will be conflict in the church and outside pressure on the church. And because of this, many people will just slide into a teaching that doesn't require commitment from them, that will, that will help them to escape the pressure and the opposition, the persecution that comes when you stand for God. Anyway, there, there are many people who suffer persecution, and God chose to raise my profile out of many who've suffered much more than I have. But he chose to raise my profile and had many Christians pray for me. I, Maybe some of you here were praying for me. And I often said to Noreen in prison, God, God chose the wrong man because I'm weak and I'm broken and I just can't handle this anymore. But at some point I began to think differently. And I said, maybe God chose the right man because he wanted a weak man who in spite of weakness would persevere and be faithful and in that way be an encouragement to other weak people who don't feel like they can make it either. And I think one of the reasons that God took me through this terrible ordeal of my imprisonment, I had to learn to endure so that I can encourage you <laughs> in how to prepare, how to prepare for and endure hardship. And this is one of the assignments I think that God has for me now. So I, I want to share a couple of these that made a big difference for me. And the, the first is... is to prepare ahead of time. I've already mentioned this, but be aware of what's coming. Jesus said that people will hate us because they hate him. And, and the Bible also says that anyone who wants to live a godly life is going to face persecution. So if you really, for many in the States, this hasn't been a huge issue, but it is going to become more so. If you want to live just a normal, godly, quiet life, which is very good, there will be increasing pressure. And we need to have it as part of our worldview, of our mindset, of our expectation, that if we do this, if we identify with Jesus, then there will be a price. And count the cost ahead of time. 
so that, so that when the pressure does come and we are afraid, we don't run, but we stand. The second thing is, it sounds very simple, but it's the foundation of everything else. Love God. Cultivate intimacy with God. And this sounds so simple. You know, Jesus said it. You all know the verse. You know, what's the main requirement, the main thing that God wants? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We all know the verse, and yet somehow we don't get it. We don't do it because the truth is that we don't naturally grow in love for God. It doesn't happen automatically. It's something you have to pursue our natural tendency is not to grow in love for God, it's to diminish in love for God. So we, when we don't nurture it, it just kind of seeps away. And this is what happens to many people. They start out, they first believe in Jesus, or they have some encounter with God, and, and they're really zealous for him, and they're running after him, and then you look at them 20 years later, and where is that love? Where is the passion for God? And I find that in my own heart, and it should be easier for me. I've been in ministry for many years. But I have to cultivate it again and again. And even this, this uh, shutdown period has reminded us to do this, that we need to get more, more oil from, from the Holy Spirit, that we need to rekindle that love and make sure that we're keeping that fire going. Years ago in 2007, Noreen and I began a pursuit of the presence of God. We'd already been in ministry for many years. But I began to pray. I wanted more power of the Holy Spirit. I wanted gifts. I wanted anointing for ministry. And I started pursuing more of the Holy Spirit. And then I prayed better than I knew because, as I said, I was pursuing power, anointing, and gifts. And this is how I prayed. I think God put the words in my mouth. Father God, draw me so close to your heart that you will be able to trust me with the authority to start waves. I said that because we're in Turkey, largest evangelized country in the world. There are no waves of the Holy Spirit. There are no kingdom waves. I said, God, we need something to happen here. So what's the way to this? I said, Father, God, draw me so close to your heart. And this became our pursuit. I'd been pursuing power. Instead, I started pursuing God's heart. It became a focus on intimacy, on drawing near to him, on experiencing, looking for his presence, seeking his face. And we did this for years, and as we did this, then God gave assignments to us. But he did this because we were positioned before his heart, and he, began, he could trust us that we would keep our eyes on him and keep running after his heart, after what most matters. I pursued for years. And I'd say, oh, God, make me hungry. This was the cry of my heart. Make me thirsty for you. Make me hungry for you. I want to see you. I want to taste your presence. And then this, this love was really tested in prison. I mentioned the reasons that I was offended at God, and I thought, how can the lover of my soul, how can... How can you do this? How can you abandon me? This way? He didn't abandon me. But I felt that way. And this was really testing. I think of, I, I started to, the first year I was really broken. The second year, God began to rebuild me. But it started at a turning point when I said, I am going to fight for my faith. I, I can't do much to fight for my freedom. But I can't fight for my relationship with God because it was being suffocated. And I said, 
Whatever you do or don't do, I'm going to follow you. Whether you give me your voice or not, I'm going to follow you. Whether you give me a sense of presence or a sense of grace or whether you set me free or not, I'm going to follow you, whatever you do or don't do. And I decided I'm going to put my eyes on you. I thought of the sunflower. It, it, this flower follows the sun throughout the day. It shifts its position. And I thought, this is what I want to do from the time I wake up. I'm putting my eyes on you, and I'm following you throughout the day, God. I want to be so God-focused. And I was driven to this because of this, the desperation that I felt. But I focused on being devoted to God. I'm going to devote myself to you. And I began to declare the truth about him. You're you're loving, you're faithful, you're good, even though I didn't feel it in my heart and I had had doubts about it. Then I was returned to the prison where I I really broke. I I went very low. I became suicidal there. I, I lost 50 pounds. I gained it all back, unfortunately. But, <laughs> and to go back there, I went back for trial. And I, I, I'd already been pursuing God for a time now, but when they took me back there, I just, I just broke again. And uh, I was under tremendous pressure. It was a kangaroo court. I had a 13-hour uh, session of trial and all these lies being told about me, the pressure of them wanting to put me away for, for years and years in prison. I had begun taking medication because of the panic attacks. They didn't give that to me. I hadn't eaten. I hadn't slept for time. And they had told me that I would be there in that prison in solitary confinement throughout my trial. And the trials can go on for many years. They're political trials. And I thought, oh, God. And after that first trial session, so weak, so broken, in solitary confinement, and this this being back at that prison had just triggered all of the failure that I'd had before at my worst times. I said, God, where are you? How could you, how could you let them bring me back here to this place where I broke so badly? And I just started to weep, and I say, where are you in all of this, God? Where are you? And then I was surprised by what came out of my mouth because I'm weeping out loud. And what comes out is, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. And then it suddenly hit me, wait, wait, this is really important, Andrew. This is your victory. Because at this very, very low point, when I have confusion and I feel so alone and isolated, what came out of my heart is what was really, really there, which is I love you, Jesus. It was all the years of pursuing him, of focusing on intimacy with him, of running after him, making him my priority, the one thing that I ran after. All of that foundation that then prepared me for the tests of prison so that at those worst moments, I was faithful and what came out of my heart was that love for him. So it was the pursuit of God that prepared me for the intense hardship. And God knew that I would break. He knew, Noreen tells me I'm out of time. God knew that I would break. He knew that I would come close to complete failure. But he also knew that he could trust me with this assignment because he knew that I did love him and would continue to love him. 
So here is what I want to underline, is that a lover will endure very much for the one he loves. If you love Jesus, you will be willing to endure hardship, and it will be difficult, but you will endure hardship for him because you love him. A lover will endure much more than a servant. Someone said God has many servants, but he doesn't have many lovers. So to prepare for the pressures that are coming so that you will stand, devote yourself to run after him, determine that you, today, that you will be a lover of God, that you will devote yourself to loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to mention one other thing. Um, It's fear of God or having the right perspective. Paul talked about this momentary light affliction when he was going through troubles, and I thought, oh, but Paul went to heaven. He saw heaven. It says he went, went there, and he's, there were things he saw that he couldn't explain, and he, he had an encounter with the risen Jesus that knocked him off his horse, and I thought, Paul, you've seen. You've seen these things. Of course you say that the momentary troubles we go through can't compare to the glory, but you've seen it and experienced it. And I beg God, oh God, please let me, just Jesus, if you'll appear to me, I'm sure that I could endure better in prison. But you know what? He didn't do it. I begged and begged and begged and he didn't. And for most of us, I mean, I still want, I want that encounter with Jesus face to face before without dying. Uh, I want to have that. But I had to cultivate fear of God. I had to cultivate the right perspective. This is something that we need to cultivate. And there was, I just want to tell you something that that illustrates this. Uh, In August of 2017, uh, the Turkish government had called me into a, a court session and they told me that they were now asking, they were going to give me three life sentences in solitary confinement with no possibility of parole. So that's pretty you know, one, one life sentence isn't enough. Three. <laughs> and so I thought this was so heavy to me. It was like a death sentence. And I thought, I may never see my wife or my children in freedom again. It was really heavy, and it knocked me out for a couple of weeks. And I got up again, started to pursue God again. And I was, I was just pacing back and forth, and I was, I was singing my grief to God, just say, oh, this is such a sense of loss. And then I began, as I'm thinking about this grief and the loss and the loss of my family, and what came out was, you are worthy. You're worthy of my all. You're worthy of my, of my suffering. You're worthy of whatever sacrifices, whatever pain I go through. You're worthy of this. And this became a song that it just came from, it was a heart song. And more came, and, and I wrote this song, and This is what uh, the bridge says in the song. It says, I want to be found worthy to stand before you on that day with no regrets from cowardice or things left undone. And that, I sang that song every day for the rest of my time in prison as a discipline, as a love song to Jesus, but also as as a discipline because months before that, I'd been at such a low point and I had said, God, whatever... I've been working for you in Turkey for 23 years. I give up my inheritance. Any plans that you have for me, that you want to use me for, you want to use my imprisonment, you want to use me in some way, I don't care. I can't handle it. 
I give it all up. I'll be the least person in the kingdom of heaven. I don't care. Just let me go back to my family. I cannot handle this. And here, several months later, I repented of that. I said, no, I don't give up my inheritance because I started to think differently. I started to think someday I'm going to stand before Jesus and I don't want to stand there with regret. Have Jesus say, Andrew, there were assignments I had for you, but you were a coward and I love you and you can come into heaven, but there were assignments that you missed out on because of cowardice. There was an inheritance I had for you to win and you ran away. You left things undone. I said, I don't want that. And I started to pray differently. I started to pray those phrases. Oh, God. Can I have some water? I'm sorry. (coughs) I want to stand before you without regrets. And I began to pray differently. And as I did, it strengthened me and it focused me on heaven. And I started this battle. It became my daily battle in the midst of all this pressure. God, if your purposes are best served by my being in prison, I don't want to be here. My purposes are to be with my family, but if I want to serve your purposes. And as I did this day after day after day, something changed in me. And I... I, started to become stronger and more committed and more focused on what really matters most. And that fear of God began to grow in me. My determination to serve God's purposes. And this is still my prayer now. I say, oh God, whatever your assignments are for me, I don't want to miss a single one, even if it's difficult. This can be cultivated You can grow this in your life. And it's necessary because, you know, Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body. Fear God who can destroy both body and soul. You know that verse. And I'd say now, don't fear. Jesus would say, I think, don't fear being those who can cancel you. That's a new cancel culture, isn't it? Don't fear being canceled from your job, being canceled from from polite society. Don't fear those who can only cancel you here. Fear the one who can cancel you for real and forever. And we need to get that perspective because otherwise when the pressure comes and we have a choice, do I stand for Jesus or not? We can, there will be fear. You know, people say, don't don't be afraid. I think, no, David sometimes says, I will not, I will not fear and others... He said both, didn't he? I, will, I am not afraid. And other times he talks about his fear. And we, it's normal to be afraid. But you want to prepare now so that you will not run. So that you can say, I fear much more. I'm much more concerned about what God thinks about me. Are you more afraid of the Twitter mob? The rage of the Twitter mob? Or are you more afraid of standing before Jesus with a life that had no fruit? Are you more afraid of the consequences of obeying God, which will bring pressure from people, or of not obeying him? 
So I don't mean to discourage you. Noreen keeps pointing at her watch. So I am really stopping now. I don't mean to discourage you. I want to do the opposite. I want to encourage you. Darkness is going to increase. We cannot escape this. But so is the measure of God's glory. Some of my favorite verses in the Bible that... Oh, they shape so much of how we think. Isaiah 60, verse 1 through 3, and it talks about how deep darkness covers the earth. Deep darkness. And it's at that point that the glory of God is poured out on his people. <clears throat> and those who are in darkness under tremendous pressures, they end up turning to the people of light. The people who have God's glory on them. So yes, there are difficulties ahead. There is pressure ahead. Darkness will increase, but so will the measure of God's glory on those who are faithful. God will pour it out because we are meant to be children of light. We're meant to stand boldly. We're meant to carry out assignments for God. <coughs> We're meant to not to survive only, but to thrive. So let me pray for you. Father God, I want to pray for you what I prayed for myself and for my family many times in prison. This was my prayer. Father God, pour out on your sons and daughters the courage, the strength, the confidence, the perseverance, the endurance, and the steadfastness of Jesus that we may run the race set before us and finish well. A beautiful bride purified in the fires of faithful obedience, tested and found worthy of our beloved, of Jesus, the King of glory. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. Yes, pour out your Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus upon us, that as the pressures increase, we grow in confidence, that we be faithful, that we be willing to swim against the current, to stand for you and never be ashamed of you, Jesus. I ask that the love that you kindled in me, Lord, place this in every one of us, a love that will fuel our faithfulness and perseverance. I bless you in the name of my King, Jesus. Amen.